how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. For 20 years, Marina Zinovic has been making documentaries about subjects that interest her. Past subjects include Lance Armstrong, Robin Williams, Roman Polanski, and Richard Pryor. For her latest work, What Happens in Hollywood, the series takes a candid look at Hollywood's role in framing society's overall view of sex and sexuality. Some guest subjects include Robin Wright, Minnie Driver, and Bobby Banks. In this interview, Marina talks about trusting gut instincts, why she avoids pre-interviews, the secret to having a great conversation, how to make first contact with the subject, the problem with cancel culture, and her interest in, quote, difficult men in terms of documentary subjects. Well, I always knew that I wanted to do something creative. I thought I wanted to be an actress. Um, and I did that for a while. I moved to New York, started doing a bunch of theater, um, but really wasn't kind of making it and started, um, there's something in New York, part of the independent feature project called the, what is it? The Indie Film Week or something. So the IFFM, Independent Feature Film Market. And I started volunteering there and started, you know, I was in front of the camera and I started thinking maybe I want to be behind the camera. And just one thing led to another, but I got my first idea for a documentary um, when a friend of mine named Michael Hacker, who was a filmmaker, um, said, I'm thinking about going to slam dance and I had no idea what he meant and when I found out that it was a film festival that was started by three guys who didn't get into Sundance I was like oh my god that's a movie and it was that kind of light bulb moment that made me I had no idea what I was doing but I just started calling people and um god three 
how many years later, three years later, I had a film called Independence Day, independent apostrophe S day about the struggles of independent filmmakers and kind of through making that film, which I could go into as much detail as you want about that process. But through making that film, I became an indie filmmaker. And then I got another idea shortly thereafter. And I just kind of was going idea by idea, um, kind of following my nose, my gut, um, while I was, you know, I wasn't doing this, making a living, I had to have a job. Um, and, you know, here I am, how many 20 something years later, doing it for a living and I, I kind of stuck with it and have enjoyed doing it and still do. Has anything changed about your process as far as like choosing subjects? I'd imagine it's easier to do maybe a celebrity once you have some you know, notoriety under your belt, but how do you kind of know, okay, this is my next subject, this person or this event? It's, <laughs> it's very tricky because sometimes I turn things down without really giving it enough thought because I try to listen to my, like my first, you know, my gut instinct. Um, so that's been interesting for me now as I've gotten more successful and people come to me with more projects. You know, when you're starting out, you're just kind of rubbing two stones together, trying to come up with ideas yourself. But when you're lucky enough to be in a position where people are coming to you with different projects, it's hard to know. Like, if you're really into it, you know, immediately. Um, usually things that I need to kind of be talked into for whatever reason, uh, it's not what I want to do, but, um, like I'll give the Lance Armstrong film as an example that that's a perfect example of usually I like to self-generate things, but that came to me through ESPN who I'd worked with before. And I was kind of like, why would I want to make a film about Lance Armstrong? There've been other films and Libby Geist, uh, the executive there was like, you know, he's in a different place. He hasn't talked in years. Um, just go meet him and see. And I met him and there was a connection. And I thought, oh, this is this could be interesting. And, you know, it doesn't always work like that. Um, each each subject, each person is is different, but that was one that wasn't my idea that I embraced as if it were my own idea. And and I think because Libby knew me because I, I had done something for ESPN before, she knew that I was the right person for that. Um, that's a perfect example of when that works. Mm. Um, Did yeah. they mention like kind of why they chose you? Like, were you known for tackling subjects that are sort of outcasts or what was, why did they come to you? I suppose they is. came to me because um, they thought I could handle him. Hmm. Um, I'm kind of known for making films about difficult men. So I don't, I have a strong personality. I, I can, I can handle people. You know, there are some people that would be like, uh, they wouldn't push. I pushed. And, and what worked with Lance was that Lance pushed. So we pushed each other. And so that dynamic was incredibly interesting to, you know, 
the people who 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 liked it. The people who hate Lance, they don't care. Mm. Could have been Lance and the Pope, and they wouldn't have watched it because <laughs> a lot of people don't like him. But for the all the people who do, they appreciated that. You know, it's I, I'm kind of rel relentless, and I just keep going, and I don't stop. And um, I think I think they thought it would be interesting if it was a woman. I don't think the mm. same film would have been made. I think a, a guy was up for it as well, but it's a different film. I mean, I think it's better when it's women bring so, so much, not that men can't, but women, women listen in a way they give, they give men, especially men with big egos, uh, space and time to, uh, show themselves, reveal themselves. Mm. What, what else do you do? So just kind of, if you can generalize it to some degree, when you walk into the room for the first time with someone to interview them, mm -hmm. do you have questions ready? Is it all in your head? Do you, does most of that research before you get there? What are some of those keys, like rules you follow? So I, I don't like pre-interviewing because interviewing to me is like a date and I want to be surprised. I want to hear things for the first time. I don't want my eyes to glaze over. And the person who you're interviewing can tell when that's happening. So if you're there completely open, ready, willing to engage and really listen, and when you're hearing something for the first time, your face shows that. And so the, the interviewee is like feeding off your energy, which just makes the whole thing work because you're not, you know, shut down, you're open. I mean, I, I, I love documentary filmmakers because they're usually open, curious people who want to find things out. Um, and, and I am one of them. So I, I, agonize over questions that I, you know, print in a very big font so I don't have to wear my reading glasses because I don't want anything kind of obscuring my view. Um, a lot of times I don't necessarily look at the questions or I'll go to them, you know, it's so important to ask the first question and have it be the right question. And it's usually something that surprises the person and gets them to open up emotionally. And so if I come up with that idea, sometimes I just come up with it on the spot. Sometimes I've thought of it ahead of time, but it's like, I'm usually the night before agonizing over how I'm going to do this and if I'm going to do a good job. It's really like a, it's like a weird um, kind of like a, an event for me, because I know when I'm in the editing room, it's, it's on me. Like if I didn't get the goods, it's on me. I can't, I can't blame anyone else. So my interviews are usually really long. Um, and I try to just get the person to open up. I'll give you a great example. I had a wonderful young woman working for me and I, I was doing two interviews via Zoom ever since COVID 
that's kind of a thing. You wouldn't necessarily think that you would get great interviews over Zoom, but you can do it. Like it's possible. It's not as great as being in person, but you can get, if you connect with people emotionally. So I did a first interview in, I was in LA, she was in New York and I did it over Zoom and it was utterly exhausting. I'm usually utterly wiped out after interviews because I'm kind of like open emotionally and I used to be an actor. So it's like, to me, actors are the best interviewers because you're taught to listen. It's all about listening. Um, sorry, I could go on about this forever, no, that's great. Yeah, I like but that. basically, so I did this interview. It was so exhausting. I said to her, look, you do the interview. And this is a wonderful woman who has worked for me for about a year and she's incredibly bright um, in her head a lot because she's so smart, right? And she started doing the interview and it, it, was, it was such a great lesson for her and for me um, because I stopped them at a certain point and just said, and she was okay with this because she's like learning how to do this. I just said to the woman she was interviewing, I just said, look, you're talking about this as if you're talking about what you're going to buy at the grocery store. Like, I thought this was really important to you. Like, this is the last time you were going to talk about this. And I need you to connect to like your urgency about why you're even in the chair. Like, why am I interviewing you? It was so fascinating because it was almost like a chiropractic adjustment that the interviewee needed. And because I've been doing this for so long, I can do that off the bat. But someone younger who hasn't, who's in their head, needs to connect to their heart, their gut. And it was fascinating because the interviewee's tone totally changed. So interviewing people, not unlike getting actors to, you know, a performance out of an actor is really about how you connect to someone emotionally and draw out what they're there to give you, whether they are a real life person talking about their experience in a nonfiction film or an actor portraying a character and, you know, for a fiction film. So. Now is that, is that generally how you connect and create empathy? Do you ever have to tell your own vulnerable stories in the conversation to share empathy? Is anything like that ever happened? Oh, all the time. Yeah. I mean, I often share my own stories because that's how you get people to open up. Um, I think I said this in an interview when I was interviewing, when I was interviewing Robin Williams' son, Zach, I started talking about my, my own father who had died and got teary because how could I not? And I mean, interviewing Zach about his dad was so emotional. And it's almost like I need to use the tools to get myself where I need to be in order to get him where he needs to be. And I don't consider that any kind of manipulation. It's just what's honest and true to me to get him to open up. And he did. And he was amazing. And, you know, a lot of times I tell people like, you know, this is... <laughs> you have to treat this as if this is the last time you're ever going to talk about this because when you have a real urgency to tell something, you know, 
you tell it, you connect to your core and you tell it differently than if you were just, you know, blabbing away and I'm going to tell this 10 more times. Mm. I mean, I've been in positions with, I tried to make a film several years ago about stories that people had told a lot of times already. And it was just kind of boring because they told the story so many times and we'd already heard them. Um, and then, you know, if you can't deliver those goods, then it's like, well, what else can this be? This could be about inspiration and how, how they were, it was, it was a, about, making movies in Hollywood. And it's like, instead of telling the same old stories that they always told, why don't we make this about how to try to inspire, how, how they got inspired to make the stories. So it's, it's not easy and it takes a lot of energy, but it's, it's a lot of fun. And when you connect with people on a deep emotional level, they just kind of, I don't know, they become a part of your life. You know, it's like you've seen them in a way, you've connected with them in a way that you don't normally connect with people. So I have relationships with a lot of my former, um, you know, people I've interviewed, whether it's from the Lance film or, or uh, Robin Williams or Roman Polanski or the Duke lacrosse film. Um, yeah. So I might jump around some, but that's okay. So, does your history interviewing or talking about difficult men did that lead to what happens in Hollywood, or how did that kind of come to be? Um, I that's a great question. Um, I you know I just people call my agent for various jobs, and Howard Owens at Propagate uh, thought I would be a good choice for what happens in Hollywood. And it was something that I, you know, thought would be really compelling. And if I could get people to talk would be um, entertaining and eye-opening. So it was really about the outreach and would people talk and it was made during the time of COVID. So it made it that much more difficult. Um, but I think we succeeded. We got a lot of great people who were incredibly honest and, you know, I don't, I don't try to just make films about difficult men. I mean, I just, I try to follow my nose and, and do projects that intrigue me. Um, when you've been doing it for a long time and you just are always kind of coming back to what am I excited about? Like what, what excites me and telling the stories of women in Hollywood, um, is, is super compelling to me. Did you approach these interviews any, any differently? Like upon your first contact, whether that be a phone call or email or whatever it was, how do you kind of say, you know, these are blunt questions or these are very painful questions. Like, how do you kind of come across some of those things? Is it all about the goal of the film or what are some of those ideas? Well, you don't, uh, I guess the one good thing about doing this for a long time is that people know your work, so they know what to expect. So if someone knows my work, then they know that I'm, thorough and honest and, and straightforward and, and 
it's kind of like no beating around the bush. So you don't really reach out and say, look, I'm going to give, this is going to be really blunt, honest questions. You just, um, you craft a letter that tries to intrigue them. And then you kind of, (laughs) they realize it while they're in the chair, (laughs) you know, but I think that these women really wanted to talk and had a lot to say that they hadn't said before. And I think the combination of um, the fact that it was a moment of reckoning. So the Me Too movement had already started and was happening coupled with COVID. I think a lot of women were just like, fuck it, let me tell my story. And you get to a point in life where you want to do that. I was thrilled that there were younger um, women who wanted to tell their story as well, because a lot of times people are scared and you have publicists or agents telling you, ah, don't do that. But it really seemed to be a particular moment in time that this story could be told. Was there any added difficulty in terms of like, you know, because some of these examples, you, if someone has been arrested for this, you can say their name. But if they haven't been, you may just say this producer. Was there any added difficulty there? How did you handle some of those things? Um, people spoke vaguely. They didn't name names. Um, you know, I was curious. And some after the interview, I, I would ask, you know, who are you talking about? One of them, I guessed, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think so, so people, there's a way to do it without naming names. Um, but I think that, um, I think there's a power in telling your story. Um, even if you don't name names in trying to warn other people just know what's kind of happening out on the front lines. So through this uh, documentary, which is coming out soon and just situational um, context, are you starting to see changes in the industry? Um, well, what happens in Hollywood is already on Roku. So you can see it now. Um, I think that I am seeing changes in the industry um, bit by bit. I think it's something we have to stay on top of um, so we don't kind of slide back. Um, But, you know, I think people are afraid that things can go back to the way they were, but I don't know if they ever can. I think, I think it's case by case, but I think the more people speak out, the more, uh, the less of a chance that you know, you can kind of be ratted out. I mean, it's like, I, I'm not, I, I don't really like cancel culture, but I am for people being honest about being um, abused emotionally or, um, you know, sexually. So what was your timeline like for making this series? And then how do you personally deal with you know, the mental drain of going through those dark waters for so long. What happens in Hollywood wasn't that dark. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, to me, I'm just, I'm curious. So I'm fascinated to hear stories that I don't know. And I'm trying to pull out, you know, everyone I interviewed had stories that they hadn't told before. Like, you know, you have your stories you tell, and then you have your stories like, ah, I'm not going to, I'm going to save this one. But um, I, we were all, no matter how difficult the stories were, I think we, the, the crew, we were all energized by the honesty um, of, of women willing to talk about things that maybe they hadn't talked, talked about before. So there's a real, there's a release that goes on emotionally for them and for you as the crew. Um, so that's kind of par for the course. I mean, filming is always difficult, no matter who you're filming, because interviewing is intense because it's a very emotional exchange and that takes energy so that you know it's not that this was necessarily dark it's just that trying to get um, information and stories and emotion out of people takes energy so but you get used to it and you know um, I think people were eager to talk because it was COVID and people were dying to get out of there. You know, it's interesting. They're the people who definitely wouldn't talk because of COVID. They didn't want to leave their house. But then there were people who were like, oh, my God, thank God I'm on a set. Thank God I can just be myself because, you know, this was made during. It took us about nine months, but it was made during, you know, we started sending letters out in February, March, April. We were still kind of sending letters out as we were getting people. So it took us about nine months a year to make everything. What does your time look like outside of the filmmaking process? Like, is there some overlap to your projects? Are you spending, how much time do you spend on researching potential projects and that type of thing? I'm always looking for um, subjects. Um, I'm lucky enough that people come to me with ideas. Um, but I'm, I'm always looking, I'm very interested in um, international projects. So that's been kind of hard with COVID because there have been some things that I haven't been able to go over and film. Um, what's the question? What am I do? What do I do the rest of the time? Yeah, just sort of how do you, how do you kind of spend your time between projects? Um, it's you know, ever since I did that first film, Independence Day, I remember I finished the film and I went to a party that night, literally like the day after I finished it or the day of. And I I was so proud of myself. I mean, it had been a, a several year long journey. And someone said to me, I said, oh, I just finished this film. And someone said, oh, that's great. What's next? <laughs> and that was really my introduction to wow, you know, it, it's not just one, you have to keep going in the sense that there's a machine that's constantly churning and you have to really kind of calibrate yourself to what works for you. I started out as a passion project person. So I used to do one project at a time. To be honest, I'm happiest doing one project at a time because it's a deep dive 
and I can be involved and calling everyone and be in the edit room. Um, but as documentaries have taken off, I've, and as it takes so long to set things up, you know, I'll get a call in December getting hired for a job and I won't get a paycheck until June because we start filming in July, right? So there's a rhythm and what it taught me is that I have to have more than one thing happening at once, which took me a long time to kind of get into, but now I know how to do that. So I'm trying to do as much as I can, you know, developing, shooting, in post, um, and it just <laughs> rinse, repeat, you know, it's like looking for projects. So I'm doing a couple of different things at once while being the mother of a teenager, which takes a lot of time. I'd like to kind of ask people, you know, if you were starting today with the knowledge you have, but no resources, how might you begin? Would you, would you look at the film circuit, uh, festival circuit? Would you go to YouTube? What might you do to kind of get yourself known as a documentary filmmaker? Um, you said the film circuit or what was the second part? YouTube? Yeah. Or any other, any other method. I'm just saying what method would you maybe choose to try to get noticed today? Um, to me, I, I, I would try to watch as many films as possible and educate myself, nonfiction and fiction. I try to read, I try to, um, figure out really, you know, if, if you were to, to die in two years, like what, what is important to you? What do you want to leave? What do you, what you have to have those kinds of big thoughts, big conversations with yourself. Otherwise, I mean, cause I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm a passion project person. It's like things that move me. I don't just make things to make them. Um, so I, it's like, ask yourself the big questions, like what interests me? What intrigues me? What can I work on for two years and try to find a topic that, you know, you specifically, do you have access to a certain world that someone else doesn't? Um, it's kind of like doing all those things at the same time while you're educating yourself, while you're um, trying to meet people, while you're going to film festivals, if you can, in your area, seeing films, listening to Q&As, going to the DGA website and listening to Q&As with people. I mean, it's just kind of like, it's an all immersive job. Um, does that answer your question? Yes. It's, I mean, they're just, you just never know. There are so many different things you could be doing. I mean, I used to spend my weekends working. I wanted it so badly. You know, I think we're now in a time that I wanted to be creative. I wanted to make things. It's like, I, I don't, I wouldn't waste my time doing anything other than trying to make something. But I come from a, a generation where like my first film, I put on credit cards. I took out like nine credit cards. So it's, you know, I would not tell, I would not advise anyone to do that now because it's a different time. Um, seek out mentors. You know, I get emails all the time from 
people I went to high schools, cousins, kid asking me what to do. And it's like, read, read international documentary, the IDA magazine, read film comment. It's just kind of like, it's like you have to be curious and want something. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.